This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last night, dozens were injured and several have died after a man drove an SUV into the Waukesha Christmas Parade, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. A 39-year-old Milwaukee man has been arrested. Police have not revealed the man's motivation. Five people have died as a result of injuries sustained. Some of those killed were part of the Milwaukee Dancing Grannies, a group of grandmothers who perform dance routines, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. At least 48 people were injured, according to Waukesha Police Chief Dan Thompson. Many of those injured were children and, particularly, members of the Waukesha High School Marching Band. Children's Wisconsin Hospital officials say 10 children are in the intensive care unit and eight others are also receiving care at the hospital, also reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Waukesha School District has canceled classes until after the Thanksgiving break. A community fund has been created to support the families impacted by the event. You can donate to the fund at waukeshafoundation.org forward slash parade. Alden Global Capital, a hedge fund focusing on local newspapers, has launched a takeover bid for Lee Enterprises, the Pointner Institute for Media Studies reports. Lee Enterprises, which owns the Wisconsin State Journal, also co-owns Madison Newspaper Inc., which contracts with the Capital Times. Alden Global is the second biggest newspaper chain in the country and has a reputation for laying off staff in newsrooms and selling real estate at outlets it owns. Other newspapers owned by Alden Global include the Chicago Tribune and the Baltimore Sun. The takeover is a part of ongoing consolidation within the daily newspaper industry as large corporations buy up newspapers across the country. There will be no Christmas tree drama in the state capitol this year, as Governor Tony Evers announced last week that a holiday tree will return to the rotunda this year. The Center Square reports that the theme for this year's tree will be Hometown for the Holidays. Ornaments are being accepted to adorn the tree. Last year, a tree was not erected in the state capitol as the building was closed to the public due to COVID-19. But that didn't stop Republican lawmakers from putting up their own tree, even though they did not receive permits from the Department of Administration to do so. That tree was soon taken down. Wisconsin Democrats have introduced a new package of bills aimed at fighting climate change, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The package, titled Forward on Climate, was introduced last week by Representative Greta Neubauer of Racine and Senator Jeff Smith of Brunswick. The 22 bills included in the package build off of recommendations from Governor Evers' Task Force on Climate Change, which both Neubauer and Smith served on. The bill includes creating a sustainable agricultural grant program to help farmers reduce fossil fuel usage, grants to help create green jobs, and a new grant program to support energy efficiency updates in public schools. The bill is unlikely to advance in the legislature, as Assembly Leader Robin Voss chastised the package on Twitter. Madison's new tiny shelter center for the homeless saw its first residence last week, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The tiny home village was approved by the city's Common Council earlier this year and has room for around two dozen people experiencing homelessness. As winter approaches and the temperatures drop, the new houses are vital to Madison's homeless, equipped with beds, electricity, lighting, heaters, and mini refrigerators. 
A plan to help South Madison thrive has made it past the Common Council. The South Madison plan would help redevelopment and street improvements in the area between Wingra Creek and the Beltline, the Capital Times reports, and looks to help people stay in the neighborhood. The Economic Development Committee gave their unanimous approval of the plan last week, allowing the plan to move forward. While residents in the area have expressed concerns about displacement and gentrification, they also welcome new community centers, affordable childcare, and improved bike and pedestrian paths. The plan faces final approval by the council on January 4, 2022. And now, today's COVID numbers. The new case seven-day average has jumped again to 3,120 cases on average, with 11.2% of tests coming back positive. The new death seven-day average has stayed relatively stable, currently sitting at 14 deaths on average per day. Currently, 58.7% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. As we make our way into the holiday season and as cases continue to rise, the Wisconsin Department of Health advises staying vigilant when visiting relatives during the holidays and to use caution around those outside of your household. The Wisconsin Department of Health also recommends all adults get a COVID-19 booster shot after they were approved for all adults last week. 840,000 Wisconsinites have already received their booster shot. And now, on to today's top stories. This past Saturday, November 20th, was the annual Transgender Day of Remembrance. In Madison and across the country, folks gathered to remember those who have been lost to anti-trans violence. WORT contributor Jonah Chester takes us from here. About 100 people gathered on the steps of the state capitol this past Saturday to honor those lost to anti-trans violence. The Trans Day of Remembrance is a national event that has occurred every November since 1999. The early observance began as a vigil for Rita Hester, a transgender woman who was killed in Massachusetts in 1998 and whose murder remains unsolved more than two decades later. Sunshine Rainbow, a local artist and poet, was one of several trans activists who spoke at Saturday's event. I'm sick and tired of having to wake up every day and fight for my life. I just want to walk out my house and be free. I want to walk out my house and feel safe in this world. But until then, I'm going to keep fighting for justice for every single black person and every single person of color until this world benefits every single one of us. According to the Human Rights Campaign, 2021 has been the deadliest year on record for the trans community since the organization began tracking anti-trans violence in 2013. At least 47 transgender or gender non-conforming people have been killed so far this year. At least 39 were people of color, primarily black trans women. But that data may be incomplete or an inaccurate picture of anti-trans violence. Per the Human Rights Campaign's report, cases of deadly crimes against transgender folks are often either misreported or unreported. El Halo, an activist out of Milwaukee, says that it's important to use the day to highlight the achievements of the trans community as well. I want the world for us, and I'm not going to stop fighting for us to have it. One of the issues surrounding us taking this moment to mourn and heal Trans Day of Remembrance is that sometimes the only things you hear about us as a community are tragic, when we are so much more than that one part of our stories. Amira Pirati organized Saturday's event and used the opportunity to call for action from state and federal lawmakers to expand legal protections for members of the LGBT community. 
In February, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, which would ban discrimination based on gender identity or sex. The Senate has not yet taken up the legislation. We need our lawmakers to support and champion transgender and gender expansive justice now. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Amid the reaction to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict is concern about the psychological impact on BIPOC residents who have experienced trauma from past incidents that center around racial injustice. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The Kyle Rittenhouse verdict continues to evoke a range of emotions from the public. A University of Wisconsin expert says the outcome could have lasting effects on marginalized residents who already feel pushed away by social institutions. Rittenhouse, a white teen, was acquitted of murder charges for shooting several protesters during last year's police brutality demonstrations in Kenosha. Professor Alvin Thomas with the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison says it only adds to the list of previous high-profile cases tied to debates over racial injustice. For anyone who's experienced racial bias, Thomas says it could further cement negative reactions. Every time a new incident comes up, what it does is that it it can produce some of these PTSD symptoms like re-experiencing, hypervigilance, avoidance, flashbacks and memories, intense sadness and fear and anger. Thomas notes a body of research links discrimination to worsening mental and physical health. He says even though some people who are black feel resigned to an unfair criminal justice system, each event still has a tremendous personal impact on them. Supporters of Rittenhouse argue the case boiled down to self-defense, adding that those who died were white. But Thomas says it's important to remember the protesters who were shot were there in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And he explains a perceived injustice against anyone, no matter their race, can add to the pain already felt by so many. I think it's very similar to what we saw during the civil rights movement, where you had people of different colors, ethnicities, who were engaged in that fight, and they bled together. As for long-term effects, Thomas says there's danger that people experiencing negative reactions could feel less compelled to take part in certain facets of mainstream society. Like elections and voting, engaging in different things that, that, that make society move. And while there are many documented cases of police violence toward black males, Thomas notes black girls and women can be victims too. He says the pain from these events can be equally shared. I think black men could be hit with the understanding that this victim looks like me. But I think black women also are hit just as hard because when they look, they see a brother, they see a father, they see a son. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Friday afternoon, the jury in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse came back to deliver the final verdict, not guilty. 
To discuss the verdict and the parallels to other cases in Wisconsin, producer Nate Wegehaupt hopped on the phone with Ron Sullivan, a professor of law at Harvard, earlier today. The Rittenhouse trial came to an end last Friday with the jury finding Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all counts. With me today is Professor Ron Sullivan. Professor Sullivan is the faculty director of the Harvard Criminal Justice Institute and teaches criminal law, legal ethics, and race theory for the college. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So just starting things out, the jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on five counts. Can you explain to me how they came to this decision? Well, I think uh, two factors primary in the jury having come to that decision. Uh, one, the government has proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a very uh, high burden to start with. And the government did not reach that burden in the eyes of the jury. Second, Uh, And probably most important, the jury credited Mr. Rittenhouse's self-defense claim. And in a self-defense or under the self-defense doctrine, once the defendant has met the burden of production, that means they put forward enough evidence to make the claim, then the government has to prove or has to disprove the self-defense claim beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's a super uh, high burden. And the government in the eyes of the jury, was unable to do that. What are some of the longer-reaching ramifications for this verdict? Does this set a precedent for self-defense cases going forward? Well, what what I think it does is uh, lets the public understand or realize that the self-defense doctrine and various gun laws across the country can conspire to produce results like this. And I think if people are wise, they're going to question a legal regime that allows a minor to walk around town with a loaded shotgun. Uh, That seems to me to be problematic. And, you know, we get into these situations uh, because of the ways in which gun laws are written across across the country. So, um, so so I think that's going to be the next big issue that someone debates. So sort of speaking on that topic, you know, putting right and wrong and morality aside uh, from a purely legal standpoint was with Kyle Rittenhouse carrying the gun in Kenosha there, going to Kenosha. Was he all within his legal rights to do everything that he did uh, form at least a strictly legal standard? Oh, uh, oh, uh, uh, absolutely. The, he uh, had a right under Wisconsin law to uh, have the weapon and to have the weapon uh, open. And the self-defense claim certainly was not unreasonable. That is to say that it's, it's quite conceivable that a reasonable jury could have found that he acted in self-defense. You know, I mean, people will quarrel with it. And obviously the biggest quarrel has to do with Wisconsin's doctrine of provocation. But but certainly uh, the the verdict is defensible. There are some people saying that this is essentially a green light on future acts of vigilantism. Are you concerned at all about a message that this might send? I'm extraordinarily uh, concerned that it will send the message that we live in some sort of wild, wild west uh, regime where people can engage in private law enforcement that always always ends badly. And indeed, I mean, I've read many accounts where uh, Mr. Rittenhouse himself said he was coming down in order to protect people and property. Uh, My strong view 
is that citizens ought to go about the business of creating peaceable communities and leave law enforcement to police. When we do get citizens engaged in this form of private law enforcement, um, you know, that's a bad thing. People can end up dead. You know, law enforcement, presumably at least, is trained to deal with these sorts of situations. We as ordinary citizens are not. So in these split-second decisions to use lethal force, lethal force where decisions are final, then, you know, you want a trained person with his or her finger uh, at the trigger, not just, you know, a random guy with a machine gun. So I, I think that decisions like this, again, it, it, it teaches people that you can uh, go in certain states and carry around weapons and, and, and use them. And I think that's problematic, and that's something that we have to be very careful about. So I want to shift over now to talk a little bit about Crystal Kaiser, who is also facing homicide charges in Kenosha for killing her sex trafficker in what she says was also self-defense. She, though, was charged in 2018 when she was still under 18. Now, recently this fall, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to review this case. Can you talk a little bit about the parallels between these two cases? Well, so the, the parallels uh, have to do with the fact that the self-defense principles are, are transparent and they apply equally to different sorts of cases. So juries take the same law and apply those law that, or, or that law to the facts. So the same questions that were asked in the Rittenhouse case will be asked in that matter. And the questions are these whether the person subjectively believed that there was a threat, whether that threat was imminent, meaning happening uh, right now, whether they were reasonably or objectively in fear of either death or grievous bodily injury, and, you know, whether they provoked it, but I don't think that, that's a, uh, an issue in, in, in Crystal's case. But the same law applies. And what people who look at it, whether it's juries or whether it's an appellate court reviewing it, uh, they are applying the facts uh, to the same set of standards. Now, in this appellate review, I believe that the appellate court is able to look at this matter de novo, which is a, a Latin phrase that appellate courts uh, use to indicate that they can look at it anew, that they can look at it as if they were looking at it in the first instance and don't have to uh, sort of defer to the judgments of the trial court. So now I want to move over and talk about Judge Schrader, who over the last couple of weeks has received a lot of criticism, both online and in our community, on his demeanor during the trial. While some people have said that he has been visibly leaning towards Rittenhouse from the beginning, others have said that this is just who Judge Schrader is and he treats every trial as he had treated this one. As someone with a lot of courtroom experience, what do you make of Judge Schrader's actions in the courtroom? For instance, asking people to stand up and clap for veterans when the only one was aiding in the Rittenhouse defense there. Yeah, I thought that a lot the judge did was was problematic. So in our system, the judge is supposed to be a neutral arbiter. And what judges have to recognize is that juries take their cues from judges. They try to pick up nonverbal cues. And judges have to be extraordinarily careful not only to uh, speak 
in a neutral manner, but to behave in a neutral manner. In fact, they have to go overboard to sort of maintain uh, a neutrality and the appearance of neutrality. So I think this uh, judge uh, uh, certainly was a bit ill-tempered at times. Judicial demeanor is important. People's lives are on the line in, in court. And as the chief officer in that courtroom, they have an obligation to treat people with dig- dignity and to treat people with respect and to not show forms of partiality. So, for example, making the jury clap for a particular witness to me uh, strikes me as going way overboard. Now, I'm not sure that's enough to, to, to get a, a, a mistrial, and it's too late now anyway. Mr. Rittenhouse is acquitted, and he's completely done and exonerated. Uh, but it's certainly not the sort of behavior that I would recommend of a judge. So, Ron, do you have any final thoughts on either the trial or the verdict? Well, uh, I, I would say I will say that uh, the public uh, got a a sense of some of the tensions that adhere in our law. Uh, that is to say that we have values that sometimes are in tension with each other. Uh, our for many, their moral sensibilities told them that. Uh, something was wrong with an individual coming uh, to another state with a loaded gun and, uh, and uh, leaving uh, two people dead and another injured. Um, but sometimes there uh, are uh, moral wrongs that have no legal uh, remedy. And uh, we, for centuries now, have had a self-defense doctrine. It's robust. It's there uh, for uh, a reason. And the jury certainly believed that in these particular circumstances um, that uh, the the self-defense doctrine uh, was the proper doctrine to apply in the case. Uh, I think the biggest issue in the case, though, is uh, gun laws. If it were illegal for a minor to carry a gun in public, then Mr. Rittenhouse would not have been able to avail himself of the self-defense law because you have to be lawfully uh, engaged in an activity. So I think we have to really take a good look at these uh, at these gun laws because we are encouraging a dangerous form of private law enforcement. I've been talking today with Professor Ron Sullivan, the fact, faculty director of the Harvard Criminal Justice Institute. Ron, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. Hey, thank you so much. Have a good one. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout looks at the week ahead in local government. The Past Isn't Past takes us to the red summer of 1919. Bridging the Gap teaches us about TikTok litigation. And contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash! The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. 
Every Monday, contributor Brenda Conkle looks ahead to city, county, and school agendas to find out what's coming up in local government. This week, jail consolidation, urban forestry, and building permits. Oh my! All these and more on this week's Forward Lookout. That's right, folks. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. My favorite part of the week. How are you doing, Brenda? I'm doing great, Dylan. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. So we'll start good. with Dane County. And at 5.15, we got PP&J, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And they, looks like uh, we'll get an update on what else, the never-ending jail consolidation project. Yes, they'll be doing that as well as um, doing a few other resolutions that they have before them, um, including some temporary and permanent housing solutions for people experiencing homelessness. They did a bunch of this in the budget. Um, this kind of came out before the budget, so we'll see once where this goes. And then at 5.30, the Public Works and Transportation Committee will be also looking at the jail cons- uh, consolidation project. So is that finally moving along? I know that it's been the prices going up. It seems like no progress is made, but it is in the, the new budget, right, to, to pay for this thing. It is, but we'll see once if it goes anywhere. I mean, it's been an ongoing discussion for so many years now. It's hard to hard to know if this is going to be finally the time that it moves forward or if they're going to run into more problems. Um, seems like they continue to find new obstacles to the jail. All right. Well, that's pretty much it for the Public Works and Transportation Committee. Sorry, uh, PWT. But we got to move on to the city of Madison. Our time is short today, and we'll start with uh, 4.30 happening right now. It's the Finance Committee. So they're probably, uh, if we haven't mentioned it, most of these meetings are still virtual, if not all of them. And this one's already in progress. So anything important the Finance Committee is looking into tonight? So um, there's a few different union labor agreements that are up, as well as going into closed session at the end of the meeting for a bargaining update. So it's that time of year where the budget has passed and they're finalizing a bunch of the the labor agreements. Um, They also will be looking at... um, some additional funds for rent assistance for folks who have um, are having troubles paying their rent um, doing, due to COVID. And then they have $2.2 million worth of um, uh, grants for nonprofits that are doing a crisis intervention and prevention services. Overture Center Foundation will also be uh, getting a new agreement and some updates to their agreement. The Urban Forestry Special Charge will also be on the agenda. And they don't even use that for forestry anymore, do they? Well, they kind of do, but they kind of don't. <laughs> I was going to say, I've kind of lost track of the details, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, a mechanism to get additional funds without going over the limits set by the state legislature. And that's what it's all about, the state legislature, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We'll move on to the Sustainable Madison Committee, uh, which is meeting virtually Tuesday. No, today. They're, they're, they're at it right now. Uh, we have a shortened week, obviously, because of Thanksgiving, so that's probably why all these meetings are happening tonight. Yeah, and also because budget, um, everybody had to postpone their meetings while the council was doing budget. So they kind of all got squished into the beginning of this week. Uh, Sustainable Madison Committee will be looking at natural hazard mitigation strategies, as well as the 350.org Madison Buildings Program Report. And then they're also getting an update about their MG&E agreement and uh, the working group that is working with MG&E. 
And then 5.30, also tonight, the Plan Commission has uh, a, a real list of, of projects. Um, you want to give us some important ones happening in a neighborhood near you? Sure. I think probably some of the bigger ones are at 22 North 2nd Street and 1954 East Washington. That's a 24-unit apartment building that will be three stories tall. Um, they're also going to be doing a project at, or looking at a project at... Uh, Kip Street, Badger Road, Gorham, um, and then there's a bigger project at 216 to 222 North Midville Boulevard. Um, that's got a demolition permit, conditional use, and some other things there. Um, there's a project at 3402 Monroe Street, and a big one at 341 State, 317 to 321 West Gorham, and 322 West Johnson Street. Um, they also will be looking at bicycle parking um, and allowing that in more uh, places. And then they're also looking at the additional um, units that can be added in backyards for um, accessory dwelling units so that there can be mother-in-law flats and another um, accessory yeah. uses too. Yeah. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> if, you, if you don't have a house, just build one in your parents' garage. Oh, poor parents. <laughs> Perhaps, but that's the intention, right? To open up the kind of. It is, yes. It, just to give more housing alternatives for yeah. for folks, um, could be it could be older parents that are moving in with their children, could be children that are bouncing back to their parents' houses. It could go a lot of different ways. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, in District Two, where we're, we're both familiar, there is like kind of a surprising amount of houses behind houses. There is. Um, I was always surprised when I first uh, started doing doors in the neighborhood. When I ran for office back in 2001, I was really surprised by the number of houses that are sort of hidden away. A lot of them have been demolished in recent years, but um, there's quite a few that are still hidden back there. Yes, like these half and fourth addresses that have yep. no connection to the to the one to the house on the street. So that's pretty right. funny too. So. Okay, well, that'll be interesting long term. Um, and uh, let's move on to the how about the Alcohol License Review Committee on Wednesday? Always a popular committee. Um, what's going on with them? So they have a lot of the routine items, you know, change of agents, operating license, entity reorganizations. Um, but there are a couple um, new licenses, only two of them one for the AC Madison Hospitality LLC. That would be at 5045 East Park Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And then another one, Lush Adult Entertainment, um, the Southern Skillet Bistro and Ultra Lounge at mm. 7 West Main Street. All right. Well, we'll be at that grand opening, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. <Get> us. <laughs> see you there. <laughs> All right. We'll see what happens then. Um, Brenda, uh this is kind of a weird week in terms of meetings just because of the holiday, um, but thank you, and I'm thankful for you this Thanksgiving for letting the people know when meetings are and posting agenda items. It is very helpful service, so thank you for coming on, as always, to, to walk us through it. Thank you so much, and I am thankful for you as well. On today's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the Bogalusa Massacre. That was murder of four union leaders by white vigilantes, part of the Red Summer of 1918, where white mobs attacked African Americans in over three dozen cities across the nation. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, 
Standing up and Today, November 22nd, marks the anniversary of Louisiana's Bogalosa massacre in 1919. During a lockout at the Great Southern Lumber Company, vigilantes killed an African-American union leader and also three white unionists. This was the red summer of 1919 when white mobs attacked African-Americans in over three dozen cities in the U.S. Bogalosa, Louisiana, was a town founded by northern investors in 1906, about 60 miles north of New Orleans. It was the site of the world's largest sawmill. A big investor W.H. Sullivan was the company's general manager and also the town mayor. To keep unions out, Sullivan hired a private army. Nevertheless, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and the International Union of Timber Workers, both AFL affiliates, began organizing in town. 1919 saw a strike wave across the country. With the assistance of the government, the bosses used World War I as a pretext to destroy the radical IWW. But to address the wartime labor shortage, President Wilson allowed the more complex client AFL to organize. Unions grew, wages and hours increased, and many workers prospered. But labor peace ended after the war as inflation rose and workers were no longer in short supply. Workers launched a massive strike wave involving over a fourth of the country's unions. In Bugalusa, there was a union recruitment meeting scheduled for mid-June, but the Great Southern Lumber Company threatened to disrupt it. However, 100 armed white men, led by 15 uniformed vets, marched into the town's black neighborhood and escorted workers to the union meeting. Company gunmen and local sheriffs stood down, and 450 men signed union cards that night. Hundreds more signed over the next two weeks. But on August 31st, a white mob lynched black veteran Lucius McCarty, who was alleged to have sexually assaulted a white woman. Then Mayor Sullivan's city commission canceled the town's Labor Day parade. Still, 2,500 workers marched through town to a white park on Labor Day anyway. One-third of the marchers were black. On September 23rd, the Great Southern Lumber Company locked out its workforce, which was 95% unionized. The company formed the Self-Preservation and Loyalty League, a white vigilante group of merchants and professionals that equated biracial unions with race mixing and Russia. The vigilantes were well-armed, deputized, and took an oath to uphold white supremacy. In mid-November, the Loyalty League began kidnapping and assaulting union leaders. Ed O'Brien, the white president of the Sawyers Union, was attacked by seven vigilantes who severely beat him, painted an I am on IWW on his t-shirt and put him under armed guard on a train to New Orleans. Saul Dacus, president of the Black Timber Workers Union, was offered a bribe for his home and livestock. When he refused, a mob shot up his house. But Dacus escaped. The next morning, November 22nd, Dacus returned to town, marching down Main Street, flanked by two fellow union members with shotguns, white carpenters J.P. Boshalone and Stanley O'Rourke, who declared they would defend him. They marched to the business of black organizer Lem Williams, president of Bogalusa's Central Trades and Labor Council and editor of The Press, a union newspaper. At the behest of the Loyalty League, the company's army, a posse of 150 armed white men, went to Lem Williams' garage. Williams stepped across the threshold asking, what do you fellows want? But the vigilantes opened fire, killing him instantly, as well as Boshalone, O'Rourke, and another carpenter. The twice-lucky Dacus escaped again, this time fleeing to New Orleans with his family. The union effort was broken. A grand jury failed to indict the 13 vigilantes. The unions raised money to investigate the murders and lobbied the Justice Department. Both efforts failed. Civil actions also failed. In 1928, the U.S. Supreme Court supported 
ignored lower court rulings that the posse was justified by threatening language when O'Rourke and Bachelon publicly pledged to protect Saul Dacus. Lem Williams' widow received no compensation. Though the effort to organize in Bogalusa failed that day, in the 60s, Bogalusa was the site of one of the first southern black-armed self-defense campaigns. The story is written in The Deacons for Defense. The people knew their history and they succeeded. But that is a story for another day. For the past and past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.45 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Each week, Bridging the Gap looks at Gen Z culture through a Gen Z lens. This week, feature contributor Teresa Yen looks at recent litigation leveled at online video app TikTok. Do you recognize these sounds? Nobody's gonna know. Nobody's gonna know. They're gonna know. These are some of the most popular sounds that have been trending on TikTok. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature exploring Gen Z culture. TikTok started gaining popularity around 2019 and reached 2 billion downloads in April of 2020. The app started out mostly known for users covering what is known as TikTok dances. One of the most well-known songs is Lottery, better known as Renegade. When the pandemic hit the world in March 2020, TikTok became a place of virtual community. Various TikTok dance challenges had people all over the world covering the same dance from their homes. TikTok became the space people turned to when they were feeling isolated in their own homes. However, with the rise of popularity comes with the rise of concerns. Recently, TikTok settled a class action lawsuit with $92 million. The lawsuit alleged TikTok was harvesting and using user data without users' consent. According to court documents filed in the U.S. District Court in Illinois, TikTok allegedly harvested users' biometric information and personal data for ad targeting and profit purposes. But TikTok denies those allegations, claiming that they used facial landmarking for their camera filter features that modifies how a user's appearance shows up on screen, which is different from collecting actual biometric information. The company says other demographic information that they collected, such as race, age, location, etc., does not allow them to identify users. The lawsuit in Illinois isn't the first time TikTok faced allegations regarding its privacy policies. In 2019, 
advocates filed a complaint against TikTok to the Federal Trade Commission, alleging that TikTok was illegally collecting personal information on children. TikTok settled with the commission and agreed to stop collecting information of users under the age of 13. However, a year later, another complaint was filed again to the Federal Trade Commission against TikTok, claiming that TikTok has not complied with the settlement agreement. In Northern California, TikTok is also facing a class action lawsuit related to their data privacy that was filed in 2019. According to court documents filed to the U.S. District Court of Northern California, named plaintiff Misty Hongs alleges that while she had downloaded the app, she never created an account with it. She had used the app to create videos but never saved nor posted any of them. However, TikTok was able to generate tailored content from these unsaved videos, leading her to question TikTok's privacy safety. She alleged that TikTok was storing deleted drafts and videos of users without their knowledge and sending these datas to their servers in China. The lawsuit is still pending. It seems that TikTok has its fair share of legal trouble related to privacy concerns. But how do these privacy scandals affect the overall usage of the app? The majority of TikTok users are Gen Z. A survey from global data intelligence company Morning Console finds that Gen Z users are more likely to stay on the app when compared to users of older generations. Kari Paul from The Guardian asked Gen Z users whether they would stop using the app after knowing its privacy issues. Paul writes, quote, For Gen Z, which has grown up on Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram, having their personal data collected is a given, end quote. Gen Z users seem to be indifferent about these privacy issues as they have grown accustomed to different social media platforms recording their personal information. Thus, they would choose to stay on the app regardless of its many privacy scandals. With TikTok being the app of choice among Gen Z, it seems that its privacy issues do not phase Gen Z users. Even with lawsuits and complaints filed against them, it looks like TikTok is here to stay for a while. For WORT and Bridging the Gap, I'm Teresa Yen. Depressed by all the bad news? This week on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new escapist movies. I want you to help me catch the most wanted art thief in the world, the bishop. Hello, boys. It's so nice to finally meet you in person. That was a clip from the trailer for Red Notice, a fun escapist heist movie written and directed by Rawson Marshall Thurber. The film features three big box office stars, Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds, and Dwayne Johnson. Johnson plays FBI profiler John Hartley, who's charged with uh, preventing the theft of a priceless golden egg that was given to Cleopatra by Mark Antony. He suspects the world's best art thief is out to get it, the bishop, Gadot, but the second best art thief arrives instead, Reynolds Nolan Booth. Booth, in one of the movie's most enjoyable scenes, almost evades capture by Hartley. There's an especially neat trick where Booth goes up scaffolding, removing key pieces along the way, much to the consternation of the police chasing him. Scaffolding doesn't disassemble that way, but it's fun to watch anyway. This isn't very realistic, but nothing in the movie is supposed to be. Red Notice reminds us of a number of other action movies, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, with Booth even whistling a bit of John Williams' theme music. There's also allusions to Jurassic Park and action. 
national treasure. Of course, being too derivative was a criticism launched against Raiders and its sequels, but that never stopped people from enjoying it. Red Notice got a 36% rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but a whopping 92% from the audience. I enjoyed the film and thought that three actors played well off each other, but they may have a pretty limited acting range. My problem with the movie, though, is the obscene amount of money spent on it. Netflix reportedly spent $200 million. Godot, Johnson, and Reynolds are supposed to have received $20 million each. The movie has gorgeous international locations, fun chase scenes, and some expensive-looking cars, boats, and costumes, but $200 million? How many smaller movies won't get made because they have spent so much on this one? Also, Netflix hopes that this will be a new profitable franchise, leading to more lavish productions. But on its own, this is a fun escapist action movie worth watching. Maybe its actors will give some of their money to good causes like supporting actors and others who lost work during COVID or aiding homeless people, one can hope. Now for something equally escapist on a bigger screen. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. Judgment Day. That was a clip from the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife, co-written and directed by Jason Reitman, who takes over from his dad, Ivan Reitman, who did the first two Ghostbusters. Ivan's listed as a producer in this enjoyable, nostalgic sequel with an appealing cast. The co-script writer is Gil Kennan. In this new story, a down-on-her-luck single mom, Callie, Carrie Coon moves to Oklahoma to a creepy, broken-down farmhouse with her two kids. She inherited the house from her recently deceased estranged dad. Her younger daughter, Phoebe McKenna Grace, a nerdy science kid, ends up in summer school where she meets a delightfully nerdy spirits believer podcaster, Logan Kim. Mom has dropped her off at the school where she meets Phoebe's teacher, Mr. Gruberman, Paul Rood. It seems like a quiet, isolated small town that looks fairly prosperous, despite having no apparent job generators. It also manages to look retro with an old-fashioned drive-in, complete with roller skating attendants. Trevor Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things plays Phoebe's older brother. He takes a look at one of those skaters and promptly applies for a job there. All is not what it seems, though, as Mr. Gruberman notices Phoebe's science interest and introduces her to a mystery. Why does the town, along no known fault lines, no nearby fracking or current mining of any kind, have daily tremors? Phoebe is soon caught up in odd goings-on around her house, which contains seemingly random items from the original Ghostbuster operation. It seems there's more to her grandfather's story than her mom has told her. She finds a hidden lab, her brother discovers an old vehicle in the garage, and our story really takes off. There are no real surprises here, but a fun, heartfelt story. Ghostbusters Afterlife also has a fun, touching climax that I won't reveal. Oh, and stay all the way through the credits for a couple of good teasers, including a fun cameo and a good closing note. A fine film well worth seeing. If you enjoyed the first three Ghostbusters, you'll like this one. See it on a big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Jonah Chester. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. 
Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>